it seems a challenge sometimes to look at the books of Scripture and really kind of look at a major theme and what we've been doing for really a, a long time is we're sweeping through the Scriptures. We're uh, wanting to get a really a comprehensive grasp of the way the Lord moves through the Bible, uh, the ways that He uh, shows Himself in particular. Uh, it, it's appropriate for us to consider that uh, even in each book of the Bible we see particular aspects of the truths, the majesty of God being revealed, the purposes of God being revealed. No doubt uh, what we've done is not a summary but it really is a, a way in which we can mark, as it were, the ways that God is revealing Himself through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As I said, sometimes it's a little bit difficult maybe to zero in on something that would actually, in reality, summarize an entire book. And that uh, is made relatively simple in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, is ten words. Ten simple words. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now I'd like to draw your attention really to two two things that are occurring uh, in the book of Acts. Both of those things are very prevalent throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and that is the scattering, the persecution, the opposition, and then there's also the proclamation of the Word of God. The scattering and the preaching and the proclamation of the Word of God. I, as I look through the book of Acts, I notice uh, at least 15 relatively easily identifiable sermons in the book of Acts. Fifteen. Um, I encourage you to look through there yourself and, and see. Uh, and what we notice and what stands very simply off the page is that every single one of those sermons, every single one of those proclamations uh, is associated with persecution or opposition. They were either brought about by persecution or opposition or they resulted in persecution or opposition. Now, of course, uh, in the case of Stephen... Um, which is associated with the passage in verse 8, this scattering, this large scattering came about from Stephen's sermon, which no doubt is the longest in the book of Acts. But Stephen's sermon was actually initiated through opposition. Uh, And so Stephen proclaims the word in the context of difficulty. Uh, and, but we see that this is the pattern that the Lord has. And sometimes we, we want to step back from the opposition, from the persecution. But we see that this is simply the context of the ministry of God's Word. It is the context of opposition. Uh, even from corners that you might not expect. Even from our own hearts. And so it would be important that we uh, would recognize this this scattering, this persecution, and this opposition that were absolutely um, inherent to the context of the early first century church. But I'd like to focus really on the preaching 
really on the preaching, and I'd like to encourage you to see that the preaching in the book of Acts is uh, certainly rudimentary. It is uh, a model for us. It should be something that we would look to, and it is, in fact, something that we look to uh, with every sermon that, uh, that is preached, and that is that those sermons primarily were made up of two things, the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Uh, and if you were to look at the 15 sermons in the book of Acts, while there are some uh, proclamations, if you will, of the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, that might be uh, absent uh, with the law, what we see primarily is this pattern that is undeniable in the book of Acts. And that is something that, of course, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus proclaimed uh, after him, and that was summarized in two words. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent of what? Well, repent of the way that we've broken God's law. That's the law. Believe in what? Believe in the forgiveness that is brought about by one and one alone, that one that was pointed to by the ceremonial law, these, the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes sprinkled and so forth and so on, the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Printed in your bulletin today is Westminster Shorter Catechism number 89. I actually addressed this briefly in the slightly prolonged announcement last week regarding the reading of books. The Apostle Paul uh, mentioned in his letter to 2 Timothy as he was awaiting death, he asked Timothy to come to him before winter and to bring the cloak that he left with Carpus at Troas and the books and the parchments. And it might be interesting, it should be interesting to us, that the Apostle Paul, as he awaited death, was yet interested in the study of the Word of God and in the writings associated with the Word. And what we see in Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 89, is something that really uh, is associated with this request that the Apostle Paul made. And uh, it, it might be that you think that after the Reformation in the 16th century, we celebrate, as we should, the printing press created by Mr. Gutenberg, and we're very thankful for that. And we, we may think that the printing of the Scriptures in the tongues of individuals uh, would really evacuate the necessity of the proclamation of the Word of God. People can read it for themselves. Say, that's the primary means. But it isn't. It isn't the primary means by which God uses to move us from being lost to saved or uh, in the process of our own sanctification, that position in life that we live. The Lord has decided that He would use primarily the preaching of the Word of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism 89, How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The answer, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. 
and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Now, I'm only too aware that a sermon that has as its subject matter preaching can appear to be quite self-serving to the preacher. But it's important for us to see that this is the progress of redemption that's displayed in the book of Acts, but it isn't only in the book of Acts. Of course, you will certainly notice that it is the proclamation of the Word of God in all of the prophets. These are, these are simply, uh, simply testaments of what it is that God brought the prophets to speak to His people. They're no less than that. Uh, but well, we see that the Lord carries this on, again, as you might anticipate, even with the advent of the Holy Spirit that comes at the very beginning of the book of Acts. You might think, well, we, we no longer need to study the Word. We have a direct application of the truths of God by the Holy Spirit. What purpose do we have even to proclaim the Word of God? But that isn't what is revealed. The book of Acts reveals, again, that those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. The rediscovery of biblical Christianity during the Reformation brought about dramatic changes in the world. As a matter of fact, it brought about dramatic changes even in the architecture in a church. You can even see that here at the YMCA. You'll notice that the pulpit is in front of the communion table. It wasn't that way before the 16th century. The 16th century had the communion table in front of the pulpit. It's because before the Reformation, there was a a loss of what is declared in the book of Acts. And that is that those who were scattered went about... Not giving communion, not baptizing, but preaching the Word. Now, that doesn't mean we diminish the sacraments. But what it does mean is that we unashamedly affirm what it is that God shows us. And that is that He has decided in the midst of a myriad of things that He could have done, to reveal himself into the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. He could have done anything that he wanted. He could have given to you a thumb drive upon birth that uh, melds into your mind uh, and would forever change you. But he decided not to do that. He decided that it would be something that comes about through the simple, fallible, imperfect proclamation of the law and the gospel. The centrality of this. But again, as I said, it wasn't merely preaching. It was the law and the gospel. The message of the gospel isn't the message that the law of God no longer matters. It's that the law of God no longer condemns to death the one redeemed through the work of Christ. It is the law of God. It is the law of God. Now, it's not that hard to get the wrong idea 
about the law of God. As you read, for instance, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's not hard to really move too far away from the intent revealed in the Scriptures that Luther really was unfortunately guilty of, and that is to begin to describe the law in terms that sound like it's our enemy. And then we're still thrown into the same kind of turmoil in our minds that all of us are inclined in our own sinful depravity to do, and that is to either incline toward a rejection of the law completely, clicking our heels with joy that it no longer applies, or commending ourselves for some fallible performance of the law. We bounce just like a pinball, back and forth. Antinomianism, legalism. Antinomianism, legalism. They appear in our minds to be at polar opposites, but in the fact they are the same sin. And it has to do with a misunderstanding of the character of God. The character of God. What does the law do? Well, what does the law mean? What are we referring to? What are the fathers referring to? What are the Puritans referring to when they say and speak about the proclamation of the law in the gospel? They're referring to the moral law of God. And it is... Nothing less than simply a display of the character of God. So if I'm looking and considering the character of God and the character of His work, which is displayed even in the ceremonial, I need to be, I need to be really careful, right, about how I describe the law of God. If it becomes to me an enemy, then I really, it's difficult for me to come into unity with the seemingly endless statements that David made, Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how I, what do you mean by that? This thing that condemns me is a reflection of the character of God, as is grace. Right? Grace is a beautiful reflection of the law of God. And it may be, it may be that in our minds, we, we've misunderstood some of the aspects of the law because as we read the scriptures we apply to those scriptures ideas that really are foreign to the purposes of God. You know, we can respond to the holiness of God in a number of ways. One of those ways uh, is Kind of like the way Peter responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now, Peter, at that moment, 
I'm persuaded, had a clear picture of the holiness of Christ. Uh, He wasn't expressing jealousy toward the Lord Jesus for His holiness, but he was uh, being brought to tremendous clarity about his own lack of holiness and need for redemption. Get away from me, Lord. But it may be that when we consider the holiness of God, it might be that we think of it in terms of that guy. That guy that always seems to do better than you. Right? That girl that's always more attractive, that gets out of bed and doesn't need makeup. That guy that can always run faster, can always lift more, always shoots better, always that guy. Right? Likely these words have slipped off your lips in the presence of someone who's done an amazing thing. I hate him. Right? What are, what are we saying when we say that? Now, I recognize you're not, don't probably really mean that you hate them, but we're in the presence, right? We're in the presence of someone greater than ourselves, and this is nothing other than the attraction of the middling standard. Could you please make everyone just like me or a little bit worse so I can look better than them? That makes me feel good. That's a middling standard. That's institutionalized as communism. It's not working out. It's a bad idea. So we can get a lot of different ideas, right, about the law and the gospel, but but if we really would look at them for what they are as a beautiful display of the majesty and the glory of God... What if Peter were to say, Jesus, would you mind being a little less holy so I can feel a little better about myself? That would really be cool. Jesus never offered to do that, and it doesn't appear that Peter ever asked. The majesty and the glory of God. The preaching. Now those who went about who were scattered, went about preaching the Word. The character, the full-orbed character and grace and mercy of God. So what is meant by the phrase, the law or the law of God, when considering the law and the gospel? As I said, the moral law of God, I would draw your attention to Matthew chapter 5. Now, Matthew chapter 5, moving on through Matthew chapter 7, is associated with what is referred to often as the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus Christ was on a mountain. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know there's not like Mount Everest there, of course, but it's a very high hill uh, that would, you know, provide the Lord Jesus really an open arena, amphitheater, if you were, so that he could proclaim 
these truths. And what we see is that the Lord Jesus brought to bear the moral law on his hearers. In Matthew chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 2, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you're familiar with this passage of Scripture. I would look down here to verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Does your heart sink at that? Would you dampen the holiness of God? Would you put, would you put as it were, something to cover up the light of Christ? Will you hide it? Verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it was all accomplished. Verse 21, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The Lord Jesus didn't reduce the demands of the law, but he brought to the fore the proper biblical explanation of the law, that it wasn't merely the letter, but it was also the Spirit. The institutional establishment of Judaism at that time had stuck to this concept of simply the letter of the law. They could look, for instance, at the Sixth Commandment and say, I've never physically committed murder. The Lord Jesus says, are you angry with your brother? Then you've broken the sixth commandment. And this certainly is true. We've seen it in our own experience. When sin brings to us a temptation, its desire is always for the greatest expression of that sin. I'm not merely angry. (laughs) Kill. The Lord Jesus reveals the heart of the one who's depraved. He says in verse 27, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. The Jewish establishment was patting themselves on the back for the fact that they had never taken another man's wife. The Lord Jesus gets under their skin and says, Have you lusted after another? You're not free. There's no reason for you to pat yourself on the back. The purpose here, again, isn't to make one feel bad, it's to simply reveal the, the, the picture of the reality of what I am in comparison to that standard of righteousness. Jesus left them no place to hide in exposing their sin and their need for salvation of pure grace given by another 
But we should remember that the law was never without grace. The law was never without grace. It is the law of God. It is a reflection, it's a document of the character of God. If we were even to look simply at the first commandments about this idea that he alone is worthy of worship, this idea that this perfect being is worthy of worship, he's drawing us into a recognition not only of his majesty, of his holiness, but also of that which is appropriate. What should I do? I should bow down and worship this one. We could look at the second table of the law as well, beginning, uh, for instance, in the fifth commandment, honor mother and father. All of these things are always in the context of a holy and majestic God. God is still God. The proposition uh, isn't that mother and father are God. God is God. And the ways that we reflect and enjoy the character of God and the growing likeness of God and therefore the growing fellowship with God is that we begin more and more to look like Him in these daily activities that are absolutely really encapsulated in the 5th through the 10th commands. The law was never without grace. When God gave the Ten Commandments listed uh, in Exodus chapter 20 as well as Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see that he associated something else with them. Do you remember what that was? It was the blood of bulls and goats. It was the sprinkling of the ashes. It was the purification of the blood the atonement that was for one reason and one reason only, that is to point to that one that could accomplish that which was pictured in the sacrificial system, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. What came with the Ten Commandments was the certain acknowledgement that they were imperfect. They couldn't obey the Ten Commandments. There's no possible way. As a matter of fact, not after... They were given chronologically, but with them, as a corollary to them, came the ceremonial law of the sacrificial system such that they could begin to deal with the ways that they were unable to obey the law of God. Not merely an acknowledgement of man's imperfection and inability to keep the law, but a means of atonement. It isn't so difficult to make the same mistake of the Jews of Jesus' day. They either made too much of the law or too little. The law mustn't be dismissed. If the moral law is dismissed, no longer relevant, then I'll be inclined to think little of what Christ has accomplished in my redemption. I will think little of the character of God. I'll think little of the continuing demands of a holy God. I'll think little of the real importance of my own sanctification brought about by the free grace of Christ, and I'll misappropriate the substitutionary nature of what Christ has done. You 
You say, I can't take it, this burden of the law, of the, the shouldness of what it is that God is holding out to me. It is a way to live. There's no reason to boast about our own sanctification. But what is it that God is working in us through the proclamation of this standard of holiness, the character of God? The Apostle Paul says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is no longer on this earth. Look at what I'm doing so that you can enjoy modeling the Lord Jesus and enjoying fellowship with Him. This is seen with some frequency to dismiss the law. There are some who seem to be genuine in their lamentations over their own sins. But there's clearly no intent to ever apply the grace of Christ in genuinely overcoming these sins. They've diminished the law of God. They're persuaded their sins are worthy to be freely forgiven by Christ, but not persuaded they really need to do anything to actually mortify the sins. The law hasn't done its work. I'm certainly guilty of this. Guilty also of attempting to do that which Christ has decided that He would do Himself. And that is to bring comfort too quickly. When we sin against God, we should go to the law. We compare our actions to the law, to the perfect law of God, and we see that it is imperfect. And then after that, we run to the gospel. But why do we run to the gospel? Why do we run to Jesus for comfort? No, 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 not first. No, we should run to the gospel to look upon the one whom we have wounded with our sin. To again see the sinfulness of sin and then to beseech Him through our confession and repentance to bring about forgiveness. Some cry over the mess they've made, but they never appropriate the grace of Christ to clean it up. Some even garner other sympathies and are commended for being authentic while they sit and marinate in what is actually a rejection of grace. The grace of Christ. I look at His standard. I go to the Lord Jesus to help me. I see that I'm at the end of myself. I cannot enjoy entering into the sweetness of being like Christ. It is the power of Christ that can help me not only sit and marinate in this mess that I'm sorry for, but to get up. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times. But what does he do? He gets up. The falling down and the getting up are one motion. The 
The way some speak of the law, it seems they're persuaded the law is an accuser like Satan. They seem to categorize the law as categorically bad, superseded. But the law is the revelation of the character of God. It's not bad. Further, the law mustn't be made out to do more than it was designed to do. It was never given as a means of justification. I would draw your attention to Romans chapter 3. If we can't get this point, we're not going to understand what it is that those who were scattered went about doing. They went about preaching the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. They did not view the moral law of God as a method that was offered to them in which they could become justified. That would be to nullify the grace of Christ. That would be standing at odds with what it is that they were doing. And the rest of this is not going to make any sense at all. If the moral law of God was set before men such that they can look at it even failingly and then run to Jesus, I know it was explained to me that way as a child. The law should run us to Christ but not because it's some kind of perverted experiment by a loving father. It isn't that. If it's a perverted experiment by a loving father given to a people that could never comply, then that strikes against the character of God. He doesn't do that. He didn't do that. That's not what... That's not what the proclaimers of the gospel and of the law were doing in Acts as they set, again, a standard for us as we follow Him. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is one of the things that the law does. It shuts your mouth. It shuts your mouth. There is no escape. Humanity is hopeless and helpless without Christ. The law shuts our mouth. It encloses everyone into the exact same category. 
of being under the law. What does that mean, under the law? It means, it means that the law, as a reflection of the character of God, declares that I am not righteous. And the Bible also declares that that wouldn't be so inconvenient for me if for the fact that God has designed my soul to live forever. And that my soul associated with my body is going to live forever in one of two places, hell or heaven. And that if I don't understand and I'm not brought to the law of God such that I would then look to the Lord Jesus Christ for relief, then I will utterly fail to see His purpose. It shuts my mouth. It reveals God. It reveals the character of God. The Bible says in verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. That's what it says. Since through the law came only the possibility of justification. Is that what your Bible says? No, your Bible doesn't say that. It says through the law, the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law, right, is to bring about knowledge of sin. And again, you may be inclined, as, as I can't say that I blame you, I really don't want to hear any more about sin. But God has purposed... Uh, that the more we understand about the depravity of our own heart, the more we will rightly value the holiness and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ given personally for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, we just saw in verse uh, 20 that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. When we read verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We may be inclined again to go back to the law, right? And say, oh, okay, this is the second kind of option here. There's the justification that comes about by the law, the moral law of God, and then there's this other justification that has been made new in Christ. Is that what he's... No, he isn't saying that. As a matter of fact, he says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They prophesy to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the law? Again, that's the question that we're answering associated, of course, with the grace of Christ. I would draw your attention to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we have 
this tremendous explanation of what it is that the Lord is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ, what it is and how uh, justification by faith that of whom Abraham is the example for us, that Abraham, that same Abraham that lived 400, count them, and 30 years before the law was given. He is the example. He is the model for us of justification. And that is the only way of justification, justification by faith. And here the Apostle Paul goes further and describes this idea of the law. What is it? Galatians 3, if we were to look, for instance, in verse 22, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. These words, this word guardian, sometimes translated as schoolmaster. I think it's appropriate. Schoolmaster, guardian, tutor, uh, the entryway, if you will. It's the vestibule of the church building. It's the opening. It's the door to your home, the law of God. So one of the things that we see here with the law of God, you want the grace of Christ? Do you want saving grace? Head nod's okay here. Do you want saving grace? Do you want to be receiving the redemptive grace of Christ? Do you want that? I'm not trying to trick you here. It is through the doorway of the law of God. If you are redeemed today, you have received the grace of Christ through the doorway of the law of God. If you are persuaded you're redeemed today and yet haven't received that grace through the doorway of the revealed character and law of God, if there is no conviction of sin, there is no reason for you to be persuaded that God has redeemed you. The law isn't a schoolmaster. It's the schoolmaster. I have heard people say that they were saved before they were lost. That is a biblical impossibility. Because it is an indication that they received the gospel by way of another method other than the condemnation and conviction of the law of God. If you are not convicted over your own sinfulness, there is no reason for you to expect that you are in fact walking savingly with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gateway to grace. You want grace? Yes, the law. What does it say? It's that all of grace. Grace is the stumbling block. I draw your attention 
as I close to Ephesians chapter 2. The law and the grace, it's not only for the first century. It's got to happen to every individual. It's the introduction to grace for each of us, not just in the first century, such that we can cast it off completely and enter into a new era. When Martin Luther stood before the Roman Catholic leaders at the Diet of Worms, he associated and used an analogy of that for those who stand before God. We all come to God alone. Alone. Every one of us. We come to God alone on the basis of what He has revealed on His terms. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the discourse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You might read that verse and you might say, Whoa, man, those guys in the first century were like really wicked. I'm really glad that I'm not like that. That's not, of course, the Apostle Paul's point. He, he's, he's talking about us. Right? That's the objective truth of who we are. And we know this is true because it's associated with the character of God revealed in His law. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. You see, here it is again. Here is the character of God. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised him up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How are you saved? If you say you're saved by faith, you're not using this verse to do it. Because that's not what the verse says. The verse says you're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. It's all grace. It's all the grace of God. Yes, through the conduit of faith, faith that was a gift given to you, by the grace of God. The law of God points to the grace of God. 
And it's the only adequate signpost. It's the only introduction to the free grace of Christ. The great failure of Israel was they began to see their offerings as something in and of themselves. They began to see their attempts at obedience as something in and of themselves. Unfortunately, many today who embrace the free grace of Christ in redemption also put on their desires to be conformed to the image of Christ as something to be commended and conspicuous. There may be an air of superiority in our following after the ways of God. That, of course, is wrong. That's what God is continually trying to do is diminish and remove and evacuate pride from us such that we delight ourselves simply in looking like our Master for His glory. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Let us pray.